Hey loves, I'm Marley Liss, and welcome to the Sensual Revolution. This is a global movement to reclaim sensual empowerment on an embodied and systemic level. My personal path of sensuality has not been easy. Shame around my body image, sexual abuse, and my queerness had me dissociated and numbed the heck out. It's been a big journey to get to where I am today, but I really have turned my pain to purpose. Along the way, I've learned our personal healing makes epic waves in this world. This podcast is here to remind you that your healing is selfless. When you learn to shed shame, love your body, and claim your worth, you pave the way for all people to do the same. Here, you can expect to hear from sexual educators and healers who work at the embodied level of sensual empowerment, as well as policymakers and justice leaders who work at the systemic level. It's all connected. So whether you're at the very beginning of your own sensual healing journey, or you're a sex-positive advocate and superstar, this community welcomes you. Let's come together and revolutionize this planet one loving, sensual step at a time. Hello loves, welcome back to another episode of The Central Revolution. I'm really excited to be here today with Emily Scheuer, who is the consulting curator at the Museum of Sex in NYC, and she's also pursuing her PhD in the history of art, focused on the intersection of contemporary art and traumatic experience through a decolonial and psychoanalytic lens. We met back in November where she opened the Reclaiming and Making Art, Desire, and Violence show at the Museum of Sex. This is an amazing, really powerful exhibition confronting the complex relationship between sex and violence through the artwork of 15 living female and non-binary artists and organizations. It's absolutely amazing, the exhibition, and the conversation we get into today is so powerful. So we're going to dive right into it. I hope you enjoy the episode, and of course, if this resonates with you, please do share it and leave a review. Um, Those written reviews on Apple Podcasts especially really help us to amplify these voices and stories. So yay for that. Let's get into the conversation. Hello, everyone. I'm so, so, so excited to be here with Emily, who is such an inspiration. And I just like forever have such a joyful memory of us meeting at the Museum of Sex event and just like bonding over the fact that we were both wearing our first power suits. And it was just the sweetest memory. (laughs) Yes, I was thinking back on that myself today. Like how beautiful was that initial meeting just to say you look amazing you look amazing this is my first power suit this is my first power suit and um just yeah so much love and mutual appreciation in that moment so I'm grateful for it oh thank you so I always kind of start with this question that you can answer in whatever way feels good and natural and inspired for you so who are you in this chapter of your life Yeah, I love that question. Um, Right now in my life, I am so many things, it feels like. Um, I am a student. I'm a graduate student pursuing my doctoral degree in art history at Bryn Mawr College outside of Philadelphia. Um, I am a consulting curator for the Museum of Sex, um, working on exhibitions there and uh, being part of that institution, you know, part-time remotely. Um, I think in both of those roles, I see myself as an activist scholar and educator. Um, I am working to amplify the voices of artists who are confronting lived traumatic experience through their works of art. 
and, and really thinking about what it means to put such works of art on display for people and how to make those, the interactions with, for the viewer with those works of art um, ethical, meaningful, impactful, um, but also to think about the artists and their voices and their stories. So I think in that way, I, I see myself as an amplifier um, mm. in this stage of my life as well. I love that. I really like that term amplifier. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important because so often in the art world, which has its own toxicity and um, beauty, uh, there can be curators or people working with artists who sort of, not that their ego gets in the way, but that they can sort of forget that this role is to really um, put other people's stories and works and energies to the fore um, and bring attention to them. Not that I'm not in, invested in my own self and I bring myself to every aspect of this work, but mm -hmm. um, Amplifier feels really important to me. Not to say that I'm taking any ownership over stories, but just trying to uplift and amplify them um, to a larger mm -hmm. public. If That's that so sense. beautiful. Yeah, it's kind of giving me like a midwife vibe. Like yes. it's not your baby, but like your role is so important and it's all, yeah. it's all part of it. Um, you just shared like so beautifully about a bit about the work you do, but can you share a little more about your work and in whatever, yeah, whatever way feels good, like what, what led you to that work? Yeah. So my grandmother, my, my dad's mom, um, she was prohibited from going to pursue higher education at a young age uh, because she was a woman for financial reasons um, and decided later in life to pursue a, a BA in art history, um, actually in Philadelphia, where I am now. And uh, she instilled in me at a really young age, just a love for art and a love for artistic expression. And we she was really important to me um, and we spent a lot of time at museums together and that that just led me to have so much love and gratitude for museums as spaces that are you know some can be cost prohibitive but I grew up in Washington DC so was majority attending you know free museums uh, open to the public and her love for me, but also love for art, I think was really inspirational. Uh, when basically in, in high school, I determined that the art world was a career path. It was not a conventional one or one I knew of anyone really going into, um, but one that I felt really inspired to enter, to work with artists and to serve as sort of an amplifier for their work. Um, mm -hmm. And I think simultaneously, I am Jewish. I went to Jewish day school, you know, kindergarten through, 12th grade and uh, a, a big emphasis of my education was on memory and on trauma. And mm. not that we only learned about our own communities from traumatic histories, but there was a very intense emphasis on the sort of experience of the Jewish people throughout time in, in relation to memory and trauma. And mm. I felt as I sort of graduated from that school that I was missing a lot of other stories and felt really, uh, felt that it was really important to explore those stories. That's sort of a little bit of background and why I was inspired to go into art history, but specifically to look at trauma and art and those intersections. Mm -hmm. oh, that's so powerful. The way that you share about like identity and history and lineage weaving into all of this work is so beautiful and like really, really emphasizes the way that this is like one point in time. And we get to just be a part of it. I don't know. Yeah. Like I'm seeing that in my head clearly. I don't know if it comes across, but it feels very yeah. beautiful. 
Um, yeah. So what makes you passionate about art specifically as a form of storytelling? Yeah, um, I, I can actually distinctly remember, and I don't know if this is something that came up for you in you know, high school or at any point in your education, but this sort of phrase, and I don't remember who even said it, but this phrase, history is written by the victor, was something that was thrown mm. out a lot and, and felt deeply painful for me in hearing that phrase. Um, I don't, I, I think the binary of like victor, failure, you know, winner, loser, and mm -hmm. historical telling is really strong in, in the Western world, um, at least, you know, in particular. And that, that phrase to me pushed me to think about, well, what, what about the stories that we don't get told because the people who lived through them were not winners or victors. And that led me to think about art as a sort of um, primary source for understanding history that, and, and there are, are certainly exceptions to this rule. There are a lot of propaganda artists in various moments of history. Um, but for me, I focus on primarily art by marginalized people, by people whose subjecthoods have been devalued, um, ignored, uh, taken away in various contexts, whether continuously or historically in one specific moment. And those their works of art addressing that and, and pushing forth their humanity, their subjecthood uh, is really important to me. So it felt like a way of seeing them, uh, understanding their lived experiences that was subjective, that was expressive, that was free um, and, and sort of separate from this narrative of a history solely written by a victor um, because generally that was really one specific type of person. Um, and I'm not, I'm not personally invested in um, their artworks or artworks by people who've always been seen or heard. Um, so I think that that's really what makes me passionate about art is it, its ability to be a window into lived experiences that aren't your own to connect you to somebody else, but also to connect to stories that otherwise you might not hear. Mm -hmm. oh, yes, I have just like such chills the moment that you said that quote. And it was just like, so clear how true that is. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of clicked for me, like, yeah, I've been really reflecting on the ways that marginalized communities, like, shine, I would say, like, I want to say shine so bright in mm -hmm. the art world. And I don't mm -hmm. really know the art world that well, but that's like my perception. And especially with, with queer identity, I'm just like, wow, like, queer culture has always been such a driving beautiful force in the art yes. world and I'm like wow that's that's why so that just felt so clear so thank yes. you for that yeah um, your studies are focusing on the intersection like you said of contemporary art and traumatic experience so like mm -hmm. can you share a bit about art as an avenue for healing and processing mm -hmm. trauma yes Yes, and I'd love to call on a specific artist. I mean, I, I worked with um, and wrote on in the past and who is actually in our current exhibition at the Museum of Sex, that the opening uh, for which we met at. Um, mm -hmm. Her name is Ida Silvestri. She's a, a, an England-based Eritrean-born artist who whose work um, on Sterile Clinic is the name of the series. I think it started in, in like the mid-2010s and um, she herself, endured a female genital mutilation as a child in Eritrea. And she 
then was living in the UK, was not um, really aware of the sort of scar tissue, the, the physical pain and wounding of her body from that experience and the ritual process. And so uh, when she was kind of going through um, the medical system in the UK, the National Health Service called NHS, she started to realize the extent to which her FGM was going to affect her ability to, to give birth and the sort of pain of that experience, the, the scarring on her body. And this prompted her to look to artistic expression. She's a photographer. Um, she, through the NHS, was able to reach out to other women who had survived FGM as children who were living with uh, the scar tissue and wanting to create a community through her artistic process. And so she began interviewing and photographing many, many women from all different backgrounds in the UK, uh, taking their photographs in silhouette and then actually creating um, a physical sculpture out of leather and beads uh, of their vulva with the specific um, wounding of, of the ritual process on their bodies and um, putting that over their mouths. So to her goal was really both to create community, to meet these other women, for them all to work together, to, to talk about their experiences, but also to actually bring visuality to the wounding of their bodies in a way that would feel healing, that would raise attention, that would bring attention and understanding to an experience that was, was really marginalized, particularly in the NHS um, overall system. So I think her work is a great example of a process that is artistic, involves photography, involves sculpting, sewing, um, but is also about community, about healing, about conversation and about telling and sharing. And I think um, she talks a lot about how this artistic process helped her heal from this sort of early traumatic experience in her life that was, um, you know, non-consensual at that moment, that was really painful and scary in that moment. And FGM is a really complicated practice and involves religion and culture. Um, oftentimes it can also involve a sort of Western lens onto a process and practice that is central primarily to Africa, but also a variety of other places. Mm -hmm. um, but her sort of desire to still take it on because it was a healing practice for her, because it enabled her to work through her own experience, to create a community out of that experience. And um, I think to bring joy to all of these women all together, while also again, raising awareness, um, was a real act of, of reclamation and, and healing and power. Wow, I'm so deeply moved by that. Like, I'm sure listeners are feeling that too, just the power of that work and the significance. Mm -hmm. First of all, before the show, like the exhibition mm -hmm. that I went to that you did just in this past November, Mm -hmm. I don't think and and keep in mind like my whole work is dedicated to sexual violence and mm -hmm. like studied social work all these things I don't think I'd ever heard anyone talk about female genital mutilation like yeah it's it's almost never discussed particularly I think in the U.S. it's it's in the last 10 years more of a topic of conversation in the UK and France um, mm -hmm. but be I think because it's a really complicated discourse, people shy away from talking about it. And I am by no means an expert on the practice or the subject. But again, in this role as amplifier, I wanted to ensure that 
the artists included in the show, Ida Silvestri, Owanto, and Aga Tamiola, who all address this practice, uh, was included. I'm sort of deferring to their perspectives, letting their voices and experiences shine through um, and hoping that people will kind of hold the complex truths that this, this ritual practice and uh, its impact hold in them at once. Um, and I think that is true of the exhibition writ large that we're asking people to hold a lot of truths in them at, at once. And I think that is important in a museum that's addressing human sexuality, which does encompass so much um, and so many stories and voices and experiences and dynamics and truths, you know, for, yeah. for different people. Hello loves, just jumping in to tell you about the 2S LGBTQIA plus community space that Eva Bloom and myself have created. The Fuck Compet Support Club is an epic space to connect with fellow queer and questioning humans, to build community and to process compet, which is short for compulsory heterosexuality. This space is just $10 per month and you'll get access to a guided monthly Zoom call and an ongoing Discord space for connection. There's always so much gorgeous community and chats happening in that space. So go to patreon.com slash support club, spelled as I said it, but minus the U in fuck, or to make things easy for yourself, just click the link in the show notes. Here you'll find more details and you'll be able to join there. We'd love to welcome you in, whether you've been out for years, are exploring new depths of your queerness, or are questioning your sexuality right now, this space is for you. You truly do belong, and we'd be so excited to welcome you into the club. We've been really excited to watch visitors in the space because they've taken so much time to read and to look and to learn about subjects like FGM that they've likely never heard anyone talk about or seen, I mean, certainly any artwork about. Mm -hmm. And yeah, yeah, both Awanto and Ida's work was the subject of my MA thesis. And Mm -hmm. that was a big draw for me in working at the Museum of Sex because I I knew that there would would really be no other context in which to to put up a show that that addressed these subjects. Um, And the beautiful thing about the Museum of Sex is that it's a space to talk about difficult topics um, and, and complex topics, so. Yeah, uh, I, yeah, I'm so moved by by all of this. And like, I think just what you were sharing on like the healing power of, of making art and kind of like that specific story just hits so deep. And of course I haven't, I haven't been through that experience of female genital mutilation, but having been through sexual violence, like it really was, it wasn't necessarily visual art, but it was writing. That was like my biggest, most within reach um, healing outlet mm-hmm. after that. And I remember saying that, like, it's like, I have, like, this is so destructive in my head and to make it into something creative outside of my body is so immensely healing. And then to be seen in that because I think that with sexual violence especially it often comes with so much isolation Mm. because of our culture's like stigma and silencing and discomfort talking about it there's Mm -hmm. so much isolation and like you're saying with Ida's work it's so beautiful because 
sharing that art instantly builds community, breaks that silence, like affirms our right to be seen in our trauma, even if it makes people uncomfortable. So mm-hmm. it's just so, it's so powerful. It is. Yeah. And, and I love, I mean, I'm so inspired by your work and particularly your phrasing of how you turn pain into purpose. I think that's sort of exactly what I'm looking at in, in the visual contemporary arts that, that there is this ability um, to take pain and painful experience and yeah, create something and then also move it outward in that way, I think, which is a sort of intersubjective experience. Like you're creating something and you're putting it out in the world and it's about this moment of isolation and pain, uh, but it, it creates a community, um, mm-hmm. I think. And that's really, really powerful. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, also value so much the way that everything you're saying, it's like, igno- like art is acknowledging the validity of lived experience mm-hmm. versus like our very patriarchal world. That's like, well, you can't speak about this unless you have a degree in it, but art is like, it, it's so, it's so vastly different from that. And I think that's mm-hmm. really important too. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I think something that, I mean, you, you brought up writing, how writing, and I think like poetry in particular for you was, was a, was an outlet. I think so many of the artists that I write about or work with or think about, they need the poetic, they need this sort of um, creative abstraction that art enables. That's very mm-hmm. different from writing a testimony down or being asked to retell an experience in a, in a potentially re-traumatizing way. You know, it's on mm-hmm. your own terms. It's about whatever you need to express, not what you have to express for someone else's goals or for a systemic goal. Um, it's very personal. And that that's, I think, the beauty in it. But also it's it's really brave. I mean, I think it's, it's profoundly brave that all these artists that I, I work with and think about are willing to put that out there because it it takes a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oof. I'm also thinking about um, this book I read, Until We Reckon, by Danielle mm-hmm. Sarid, which is actually about restorative justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and she breaks down survivors' most common needs in that book. And one of them is a coherent narrative, like mm-hmm. to make some sense of what happened. And so often we can't mm-hmm. in a linear way. Like so often we can't just say, oh, this happened because of this and that's why that happened. And like, now I understand the whole thing. Like so often trauma is very fragmented and confusing and I hear so much in what you're sharing. And I'm just like, so, so grateful for artistic expression in this way. Like it allows us to move beyond that linear thinking and mm-hmm. to make sense of things in a creative way. And yes. I just think that's essential. Yes. Yeah. I, I completely agree. And and even, I mean, one artist I can think of in the exhibition as well, Hannah McBroom, she actually addresses a sort of ongoing fear and um, anticipation of violence against her body because she's a trans woman and she knows the statistics. So she lives with the fear of those statistics constantly in every particularly sexual encounter and so the painting in the show is actually an imagined 
figurative scene after someone has sort of committed violence against her body? And what is the sort of healing practice of that imagining, that sort of fantastical recreation um, that, that to me is so radical and also painful and real that, you know, there is specific lived traumatic experience and there is systemic ongoing Mm-hmm. traumatic experience that specific people live with every single day and I mean I just read a beautiful book called In the Wake uh, by Christina Sharp and she uses her own personal experiences as a black woman in America and thinking about um, what happens what beauty and joy and creation and possibility exists in the wake and the wake is this sort of ongoing systemic traumatizing of black people in the U.S. So there's just so many creative possibilities for artistic expression that can be both a processing of a lived event, but also a sort of processing of systemic trauma and systemic traumatization. And I think though I'm really interested lately in those dynamics of, of artists dealing with one specific event or artists whose, whose subject position puts them in a position of peril every waking moment, right? And, and how that's processed through art is uh mm-hmm. yeah yeah I'm I'm really 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 grateful for this conversation and like all the intersections of it and I just think a lot of listeners will feel really deeply validated by that example as well because I think so often we hear this kind of like privileged bypassing perspective in the world of healing mm-hmm. and like self-development that's like um you know just be present like well that isn't happening mm-hmm. right now so just be present and I, you know, I, there's so much truth to that. And it's also true that the body holds memory. And like you're saying, which I never really hear people talk about, the body also holds imaginings and like mm-hmm. imaginings that become, that start to feel very possible based on memory and based yeah. on history and based on identity and what's always been true for certain marginalized bodies and identities. So, I just think it's like, yeah, I, I'm also hearing how incredibly validating art is in that mm-hmm. way um, mm-hmm. for the emotional aspects mm-hmm. of it all. Yeah. So something that we were like already touching on and that you were describing so powerfully and I'm thinking specifically like of the reclaiming and making our desire and violence show is like, it was such an interesting and powerful experience because like the social nature of the show is very lighthearted. Like people are dressing up and drinking mm-hmm. champagne and looking cute and mm-hmm. like catching up and conversing. And at the same time, there's such um, like emotionally um, moving content and mm-hmm. people are also feeling that and engaging with that. And I just think that that's like really powerfully reflective of any conversation around Mm -hmm. sexuality and Mm -hmm. pleasure so like I'm just curious like what are some thoughts you have on that and ways that you weave this wholeness into the exhibition and your work in general yeah that's such a brilliant question and I'm I'm really grateful that you noticed that about the opening because I I was noticing it too and I was at first a little nervous you know what if artists feel disrespected or the survivors who are in that space not reflected in the works of art or reflected in the works of art feel 
disrespected or re-traumatized and are in the midst of this sort of joyous celebration. And I think the title reclaiming and making sort of reflects that energy in that this subject is heavy. I mean, the, the stories that are being told are really painful and upsetting. And we, we expect that to be the response, but at the same time, the opening reflected this goal of reclamation. And I think reclamation involves joy and empowerment. Mm -hmm. And it's to say, you know, these works of art and the, the experiences they reflect can be really painful, are really painful. Uh, but at the same time, the creation act, them being in this space, us convening together as a community to process them, to think about them, to hold space for them is a joyous act. And so there's this really, as you said, I mean, so, so well that human sexuality involves pleasure and pain and you can't deny that. And that was always a big consideration in putting the show up at all. It's not the first exhibition at the museum to address you know, difficult and painful subjects. Uh, we had an exhibition by a Spanish photographer named Laia Abril called On Abortion and the Repercussions of Lack of Access, mm. not before this exhibition, but before that, um, kind of during the pandemic, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, it's not the first time that there's been a complex subject that's not purely joy, fun, sexy, etc. Um, but people do have that association with the Museum of Sex. Most of the time, people come to the Museum of Sex to go through Super Funland, which is, you know, three or four floors of carnival-esque sexual themed games. And yes, like the titty trampolines. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, people, most people say, oh, the Museum of Sex, like the, the booby bounce house. And it's like, yes, that yeah. is there. But we also have three floors of exhibitions that look and that's what I'm responsible for, you know, that look really deeply at human sexuality from all angles through a variety of different objects, both historical. I mean, we have the first Playboy that was translated into Braille um, and thinking about like, what mm. is that object? What story does that object tell? Like, what about accessibility and human sexuality? Um, and it also includes, you know, Laura about uh, the first sort of Osei vibrator that Laura DiCarlo put out and the the frustrating experience of receiving an award and having that reward award be rescinded um, and the sort of misogyny of that and, and the pain of that but then also has this exhibition reclaiming and making um, we we have the space for both the serious and the sexy the fun and the painful and that is true of sexuality and I think that we have to hold space for all of that at once and yeah. and we've been so grateful I mean I read through the TripAdvisor reviews a lot um being remote I don't get to be in the gallery every day to watch people you know go through the space but so many people write about you know I didn't expect to feel so deeply and have so much fun mm. and if people are really able to do that there then we're doing something right and the last thing I'll say about that sort of joyful painful dynamic is that one of our exhibition partners and sponsors is the Sex Workers Project of the Urban Justice Center and their documentary, Sexual Healing, is on display in the gallery. And in that documentary, I mean, you're seeing these fantastic scenes of, you know, a dominatrix kind of working through and playing with BDSM kink with the client, but also talking about the sort of fear they experience 
because their labor and work is criminalized. So you have this dynamic of both, you know, really complex topics such as the sexual enslavement of women by the Japanese Imperial Army during World War II, and also someone who's choosing to be a sex worker who's empowered and creating healing spaces through their work in that industry. Mm -hmm. So again, you have to hold these at once in you. And the truth is that the Sex Workers Project, they're anti-trafficking, they're anti-coercion into sex work, of course, like they are, but they also uplift sex workers who are mm -hmm. choosing and are empowered and impassioned by their work and creating such impactful spaces for people to healthily explore potentially violent sexual instincts in consensual, healthy, community-oriented ways. Um, and, and that cannot be overstated. I mean, I, I don't think, as far as I know, there hasn't been an exhibition that looks at sexual violence in art and includes this perspective on sex work as healing work in the mm -hmm. BDSM sphere in particular as very liberatory and very wow. powerful. So that was a big moment, I think, for us to, to say again, hold all these truths in you at once because this is, this is life, this is sex and sexuality. Yes, yes, I'm, I'm just like overjoyed by this conversation. That was a long, a long one. <laughs> no, it's like, uh, I just feel everything you're saying so, so, so much. And I think that wholeness and like, this is why I called my program the Sensual Wholeness Academy. I think it's like the most brave thing in the world to really hold that wholeness because even though our work is different, there is such a, there is obviously a sh really yeah. deeply shared mission. Mm -hmm. Um and I'll get a similar thing to the Museum of Sex all the time where I'm like, oh, people are like, what do you do? I'm a sensuality coach, sex educator. And also often get like, ooh, okay. Right. Like, oh, you get to review vibrators. Like, ooh. And yes, like that is true. Like that yeah. fun, that pleasure, that joy, that like little shoulder pop, like that, that energy, it's yeah. all true. Yes. And at the same time, it also is holding space for grieving trauma, for thinking about the ways we've felt unsafe in our bodies yeah. and in the world and the systemic oppression that's led to that and like how incredibly nuanced and and just like complex and whole and beautiful and painful and all the things like like you're saying sex and sexuality is so just I, I'm genuinely grateful for every single word you're saying I'm just like oh my gosh it's so it's the conversation that's really needed and I see a a mainstream response right now hmm. that is, well, let's just not talk about it. It's too complex. Mm -hmm. Let's just not talk about it. Yeah. And I see that with social media censorship. Like I see that in, in so many different ways and just in my heart, I just feel like I'll honestly moved to the point of like almost tearing up so many times on this, on this conversation. Cause I'm like, no that's not the answer to me like this feels like it yeah to, to yeah. talk about it while acknowledging the nuance and and really be courageous enough to bring laughter and tears into the same space so mm. ah, I'm just like chef yeah. kiss thank you for all of that <laughs> no thank you for I mean all of your work and the space this space that you're creating I mean we we are deplatformed on Instagram right now at the museum we're working on it. Um, you know, so many sex workers, creators, people working in this industry in all its 
you know, permutations are censored and deplatformed and don't have, and, and when really what they want to do is exactly what we're doing, right? It's just have dialogue, have nuance, hold space for multiple truths, empower people um, with, with a radical and, and liberated perspective on, on this subject. And yeah, it's, it's painful to, to think about the silencing that goes on in the mainstream media and social media, et cetera. Um, it's something that we've been negotiating a lot with this exhibition. It's been really challenging to get press, to get features, to have mm -hmm. a space to even talk about it online because we are deplatformed because people don't totally understand how we could possibly have an exhibition that has both a beautiful installation by Chung Jin Lee about the history of comfort women during World War II and mm -hmm. includes consensual whipping by a dominatrix and sex worker in that same space. Mm -hmm. And it, it is heartbreaking because I think the world would be such a better place if people really could talk about all of this openly and understand and come to a place of nuance and openness. The two spheres of my life in academia and the Museum of Sex, I get constantly, you know, questioned by professors, etc. But aren't people just going to the Museum of Sex for, you know, cheap thrills or pornographic mm -hmm. experiences? And number mm -hmm. one, like to reduce that to something negative is problematic, yeah. period. <laughs> but yeah. also to not even see the power that this the institution has to create a way more nuanced, way more complex, way more open dialogue than other you know, museums and institutions is so frustrating to me in an academic space that sort of sees itself as really liberated and, and progressive and, and open. So, you know, you're always, I'm always trying to push at the sort of assumptions. It's hard work, but it feels so worth doing. And I'm grateful that we get to have this conversation and that your incredible podcast enables it because it has been hard to have these conversations in in a lot of ways yeah grateful for you thank you and I'll say too like if people want to hear Laura DiCarlo's full story with the rescinded award that you mentioned mm -hmm. like episode yeah. two so much resonance with everything and that's such an interesting point too with like the academic spaces and like you said and I, I love that you said this like why is it a bad thing if it's pornographic if it's joyful if it's like if it is a room full of people bouncing on titty trampolines like mm -hmm. why is why is that less meaningful right? right and it's like the devaluation of pleasure and the misunderstanding mm -hmm. of pleasure and just honestly that can be so like pleasure can be immensely healing when we think about mm -hmm. a survivor for example who's maybe felt disconnected from pleasure and ashamed of their body and unsafe in the world in terms of sexual expression for their whole lives maybe bouncing on a titty trampoline is the most healing thing the most liberating yeah. thing they've ever experienced and like there's just there's so much more to all of it it goes so much deeper so I'm so this is exactly like why I do all of this work Hello loves, we're going to take a quick break from our conversation to tell you about my signature group coaching program, the Sensual Wholeness Academy. This is an eight-month program for women and non-binary folk who are ready to let go of shame and claim self-love, sensual empowerment, and somatic healing within an epic community rooted in radical acceptance. The course includes eight modules which dive into content like strengthening boundaries, 
claiming your true yes and no, transforming shame around sexuality, building a mindful self-pleasure practice, releasing body and genital shame, transforming trauma-inclusive sex education, empowered intimacy, the wheel of consent, and so much more. When you sign up for the Central Wholeness Academy, you get access to live weekly group coaching calls featuring embodiment practices. You get the eight video training modules. You get access to our VIP virtual community space where you receive ongoing support throughout the whole program. You get guided journal prompts, community to last a lifetime, and bonus workshops with amazing guests. If you're someone who's ready to let go of shame or numbness and claim the sensual empowerment and self-love you deserve, then your next step is to go to marleylist.com slash SWA. You'll also see the link for that in the show notes. So here you'll see plenty more details about the program and you'll be able to set up a free consultation call with myself where you'll receive personalized support and explore if this is a fit for you. So I'm so looking forward to connecting with you on this call. You're so worthy and capable of this reclamation. I just want to point out this like really beautiful line in the show description. Mm -hmm. Um, It reads, these artworks ask us to bear witness both to the reality and history of sexual trauma and to the resiliency, agency, and healing power that survivors of such trauma manifest. And I feel like this is like a lot of what we talked about today. And I just think it's so powerful. And specifically, I'm really like curious about Mm -hmm. the word resiliency for you as a person. Like, how would you, what does that word mean to you? Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, I just think it's a really big word. It is. That's a great question. (laughs) I think like the synonyms that come to mind at least in also thinking back to like writing that that line and and thinking on it for a bit of time um I think resiliency for me is like bravery strength and persistence like the the idea that for example to go back to Ida Silvestri's work like it it what it could not have always been easy to relive her experience regularly in all of these conversations that she chose to have with other survivors in creating the community space and creating the works of art. I mean, even the physical process of sewing those vulva with all of that scar tissue, even if it's, you know, a visual sculptural representation, like just the the process of that to me is, is resiliency, the sort of choice to take that on so that other people can learn so that other people can grow. And that's not to say that someone who lived through FGM and didn't choose to take on a sort of artistic project or activist project isn't resilient, right? Like they're Mm -hmm. resilient every second of every day as well. And I definitely want to call that out. Um, There's no exceptional resiliency to these artists. There's just always resiliency for these survivors in, in, again, like the waking moments of um, being and just like being with the knowledge and experience and and holding of both traumatic experience and potential misunderstandings or misconstruings or misperceptions of of them and their their beings. Um, And I think that's sort of what resiliency holds to me is uh, both an acknowledgement of the, the strength and bravery of all survivors of traumatic experience, but also the sort of specific moments of resiliency that we see aesthetically enacted in so many of the works of art on view in the show. 
Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, I'm having such a thought and I feel like it's probably a whole conversation for another day, but I just want to like name it. Um, something I've heard before, especially when I share about, okay, like, right, like I, I published a book about my trauma, like within one year of, of sexual trauma, right? And something I'll often hear is people being like, oh, like, um, like, I can't believe you were focused on like, being so productive and stuff after like Mm. um like I couldn't have done that this kind of thing um like almost like this idea that that happened and then I was like I'm gonna publish a book about this and like Mm. I think that that is such a capitalist framework Mm -hmm. to see it that way and it's very different from an artistic framework where it's like that was 100% for me right and then I shared it because it was so much bigger than me but it was like if I hadn't and this is true because I also grew up in dance too like art mm-hmm. the world of art has always been my like emotional processing savior mm-hmm. like almost like I would be fucked without the arts yeah. um and I think that like yeah after trauma it, it was actually like a need for me to be writing like I had to put all of those feelings somewhere And I just think it's very interesting to think about that distinction between like capitalist work, like someone being like, I'm going to create three paintings today in order to Mm -hmm. make my rent. Like, and not, you know, we need to be able to pay the bills, like not shaming that mindset either. Um, But just acknowledging that distinction where like, like we were saying, and like you shared so powerfully, like art is and can be such a vehicle for healing and then there's this magical nature of it where like we create something for ourselves as survivors Mm -hmm. because we have to and then we share it and it's for so many people as well who like deeply needed it for validation or deeply need it for education and just Mm -hmm. like yeah I don't know I just I just was yeah I love that. that you I love that you called that out because there is so much interwoven with artistic the artistic process and sort of capitalist discourse I mean we call them artworks right like the the Mm -hmm. work is part of the word and there's a really complicated relationship there that is definitely another sort of full long (laughs) conversation um but so worth always thinking about and and of course you know artists should be compensated for their labor period um Mm -hmm. but at the same time yeah, this, what you called a need, a need to create something or a need to put words on a paper in a way that was healing for you and mm-hmm. empowering for you in that process. And then that led to something that was like a product that could be given. Just, yeah, it was a product, but it was given, right? It was shared. Mm-hmm. And that again, so many people will be positively impacted by that. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, at that sort of will to create that inclination is always of great interest to me. Sometimes like in the case of one artist I've written about, um, Obiora Odechiku, he was painting in the midst of the Nigerian civil war. He had this, this need, this like uh, will to create um, that, that was separate from anything else. Though I'm, I think there are many artists as well who sort of are inspired by therapy or therapeutic moments. Um, I can think of an artist, Marianne, who made a film in the aftermath of the Holocaust to work through his lived traumatic experience. Um, 
and all of those works of art are valid, but, but they all share this sort of uh, need or will that's not about capitalizing on trauma or fetishizing trauma. And I think that's something people will bring up with me a lot mm -hmm. as well is to say, oh, well, what does it mean to capitalize or what if people are fetishizing the works of art on view? And yeah. that being at the Museum of Sex too, right? That like, there can be moments of fetishization in the museum um, and those, those are possible and we can't control everybody's responses to everything. Um, but again, this is about amplifying that need, that need to create in response to, and that need to bring awareness to that wasn't, that isn't for them really about a sort of, yeah, waking up is I need to create three works of art today to accomplish X goal, um, but was about healing and personal journeys and community. But I think something we did in the exhibition space to call out the sort of complexity of each of the works of art was include really specific language, really specific labels um, mm -hmm. with guiding questions, with questions that encouraged people to look at the works of art through the, the framework that we were designing. And that, that is what curating is. I mean, it's a creative act in the sense that you're, you're kind of creating an educational space, but also one that is, is poking people. It can be yeah. con a confrontational space, a subversive space. Um, and that's what's really exciting to me about the curatorial process is to kind of amplify works of art, but also get to kind of situate them with language, with text, mm. um, to encourage people to think a little deeper. I hear such a skillful kind of sweet spot there of like being willing to make people uncomfortable alongside care mm -hmm. and alongside like that lightheartedness and that the joyful aspects of pleasure we were talking about that allow yeah. it to be okay. Mm -hmm. um, but I just, I think it's so real that we do grow in that discomfort. And then yeah. I also think that sometimes often people take that way too far and that's when it becomes not actually a growth zone, but it becomes a panic zone. It becomes re-traumatizing. Mm -hmm. So yes. I think that that balance is like so key. It is that, I mean, that's everything with this show in particular, we were so sensitive, um, we didn't want to re-traumatize or abuse viewers. Like we, we included a sort of content warning that was really open and honest to say like, there is no monolithic narrative about this subject. We are not experts on this subject. Like no, nobody is. And we want to acknowledge that. And we want also to ask you to both warn you that this is the content that you will see, but also to say, um, to ask for your sort of patience and attention to these works of art yeah, and yeah. to spend some time with them if you can you know just to to talk to people and that's that's a big component of my curatorial practice is to to actually be open and honest and not authoritative I think mm -hmm. museum language can be so abusive and its use of mm -hmm. language that is not accessible um a sort of presentation of fact as as fact or as objective as authoritative. And the Museum of Sex is not the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Like we're not a space that people that, that come to because they go to the Met or because they always go to the MoMA or other museums in New York that are high fine art institutions. We do have high fine art on view all the time, but we're also a different kind of space. Yeah. That says it's okay to jump on a boob bouncy house and also <laughs> and also to, you know, stand there and look at Hannah McBroom's 
you know, imagining of violence against her body as a trans woman. So this is, it has to be both. And yes. to kind of acknowledge the hum- the intention of humanity behind all those projects, I think will hopefully give people a little more patience with what is a difficult experience um, and a nuanced experience. It's so powerful. Um, and yeah, I just want to like circle back to, to what we're saying too about um, like this kind of like making sure we're not fetishizing violence and people's questions around that and re-traumatizing mm-hmm. survivors. And I, the, the word that just comes up for me really strong is like choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I've, I've quoted this on this podcast before, but there's a beautiful Adrian Marie Brown quote that so simply says like a survivor's job is to survive. And I feel that. And I, and I hear so much in what you're saying that like, that looks different for everyone. Mm-hmm. It looks different. Like you said, that exceptional, um, like resilience is, is for every survivor. It doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what you did or didn't do after that. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm just like feeling the the power of choice and people's mm. choice to not have their art exhibited at a show if it's about something that feels like yeah. unsafe or it doesn't feel good for them to do that. And then people's choice to do that, like to exhibit it. And, and mm. I can definitely say as a survivor who's shared my story in so many formats again and again and again and again and again and again and again, I've had to work through a lot of shame and fear around mm-hmm. like quote, quote, sensationalizing my story mm-hmm. and what it means to make money from telling my story and this kind of like internalized cultural ickiness around that. That's like, oh, well, you shouldn't do it. And it's like, I think what we need to come back to again and again is a survivor's right to choice. Mm-hmm. And for me, I, I choose that as a path that feels empowering and important and healing for me and for mm-hmm. so many others. And I just, I feel um, you as an amplifier, helping people connect to that power of choice so much. And I think that that is like one of the most restorative and healing things for survivors in our mm-hmm. world. So I'm very, very grateful for that. Thank you. It, re- it means a lot to hear that. Um, I think people well people always have sort of as we've discussed strange responses to sort of this kind of work and one really strange response we had actually in fundraising for this exhibition um was someone saying well that topic seems too dark or something like that or um that's not our mission or in line with our mission meanwhile this is sort of a millennial feminist brand quote-unquote empowering women empowering people um and that I mean that made me I mean it made me mad to be honest because I I don't I cannot empathize with the response of like too dark too difficult too sad because these are people's real lives and you you in looking at it like if you've gone through the same thing and it's too painful to look through or you've gone through something similar like that is a choice to come Mm -hmm. and engage but if you just feel like you haven't you can't relate to the experience. You haven't lived through something similar, but it's just too hard to look at. I get a little bit, I, I find myself being a little impatient with people sometimes because I think you grow in those moments of discomfort and because there is a lack of amplification of these stories. There, there is. Mm-hmm. Um, and to, to choose not to engage them when you have the privilege to not be 
re-traumatized by them individually frustrates me. And I have had to like think about that and try to be patient with people and say, you know, I understand why you are saying that you're not wrong, right? That this is difficult content. This is mm -hmm. painful content. Um, but if you can, and that was the sort of tone of the content warning was to say, if you can make space for this exhibition, if you can take some time and really be here and read and learn, like we would ask you to do that, you know, yeah. that it was just that to, to still give people choice, not to say you have to be here, not to be sort of abusively confrontational, but just to say, well, well, maybe you can be here and, and mm -hmm. ask yourself if you can. And if you can, you'll grow from being here. So, so yeah. please try. Like that was sort of trying to be the tone of, of the patience of that. And we had so many conversations. Um, I've talked to survivors who are really against content warnings who say, mm -hmm. I lived through this. I didn't choose this, right. this trauma. And I, so you shouldn't have to get to choose whether or not you learn about it in this context. Mm. And, and I, I can understand why someone would have that perspective. You know, it, I could see that it could be frustrating for them to say, I didn't get a warning. So why do you get a warning? Um, mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. know, but then at the same time, we have to think like, okay, but how can we be maybe restorative about the tonality behind the space um, or generous with our tonality? Mm -hmm. And my my role kind of as an intermediary, as an amplifier, um, who is not being, who has the privilege to not be re-traumatized by this content, feels like I can bring some generosity and um, intermediary between this dynamic of yeah. kind of the audience and the, the voice of the survivor through their artwork. Amazing. On Like related to that, my last big question is like, what would you love to see more of in the art world? And what's mm. like, what's like your biggest dream for mm. where this is all headed? And like, yeah, yeah, maybe like what that intersection of sexuality and art can look like in the world. Yeah, I love that question. Th this week in particular, I've been thinking about the way that my work focuses on both the ways that pain and pleasure is inscripted on the body and also how that gets expressed outward through art um, and it strikes me as a really revealing dynamic and interplay um, but also one that isn't I mean it, it, it is discussed at the Museum of Sex <laughs> um, I think there are other institutions and galleries that are unafraid to kind of put works that confront these topics on view. Um, but I think my dream is always to just amplify to a, a broader audience. Um, mm -hmm. The hard thing about the Museum of Sex is like, we can't have people under the age of 18 come in. Right. Um, I, I wasn't involved in like the institutional decision-making behind that. I, I understand it, of course. Um, it's understandable, but at the same time, uh, I. I do love the idea that if you curate at a larger art institution, you gain access to all ages. You have, you know, children's groups coming through. So, so my dream is really to bring some of the radicality of the Museum of Sex to a larger institution with a with a wider age range and a wider reach. The big dream would be, yeah, to bring this works of art that are unafraid to confront 
the intersections of pleasure and pain uh, mm -hmm. to a wider audience. Um, and, you know, I used to think that I would really want to like open a museum that confronts trauma and traumatic histories and artwork that addresses all of that and have that really be its own space for thinking. Um, I'm always really inspired by Walter Benjamin, who was a, was a Jewish theorist and philosopher um, who was murdered by the Nazis in, running away from them in Spain uh, in 19, I think in the 1940s. His last essay was a, was a thesis on the philosophy of history. And one of the things he writes is the state of emergency that we are in is not the exception, but the rule. And I think understanding history through that insight is really important to me. Um, and to not, to ensure that historical traumas and ongoing traumas and contemporary traumas are, are amplified is really important to me. Um, yeah. And I think because that's the only way that that state of emergency will not be the, the rule anymore, right? That that could become an exception. Uh, we're so far from that right now mm -hmm. um, in, in really painful ways. And so I think art can be such a beautiful way of teaching people about that fact um, and, and trying to instill a better future. Yes. And something I've been reflecting on so much is just how like, our big dreams are held by so many people because of the shared missions. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that's so beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so freaking much for sharing all of this with us. I'm mm -hmm. like genuinely in love with this conversation. How can people connect with you and support your work? And if you want to share like specifically how people might be able to support and connect with the Museum of Sex as well. Yeah, yeah. so definitely um, for me personally, I'm, I love to like, talk to people who cold LinkedIn message me. I actually hired someone recently at the museum who, who cold LinkedIn and she's amazing. Um, so I, I can always be found on LinkedIn at, at Emily Scheuer. Um, my Instagram is E-M-M-S-H-O-Y-Y. -Y, and I'd love to connect with people on there. I don't think I'm super skilled at social media. So I need to, <laughs> to be more skilled at it. But um, I do like often connect with people that way. Um, and the Museum of Sex, our, right now our website is really the best. It's just museumofsex.com. We also have a, a good Twitter, which is at Museum of Sex, um, where we'll post also about um, collaborations with film series and other projects going on, usually locally in New York, but sometimes in other spaces. Um, so I'd encourage people to follow along. And we are working on restoring our Instagram. So yeah. I will I will try to like get that out at some point. Thank you so much again for having me on here. I I felt a little bit of imposter syndrome at first, like, oh, how is my work as like radical and like exciting so as all of these incredible people you have on this podcast? So I'm I'm humbled and grateful to to be included. Oh, thank you. I'm definitely going to drop a lot of those links in the show notes. So it's really easy Perfect. for people. And Perfect. this was incredible. So thank you so much, Emily. Thank and you. thank you everyone for listening.